Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture, back with more tales, oral histories and testimonies from the underground. I'm Stephen Coates. Is the story of the counterculture one largely told by men and about men? Have women been airbrushed out of the picture? Were women in the 50s, 60s and 70s given their due, granted the freedom that those decades made so much of? Was the sexual revolution, sexual liberation, carried out for both sexes? Even when women's contribution was recognised, were they assessed as much for their works as for their looks? As Jen Bickerdyke, my guest in our episode about the singer Nico said, which articles about male artists were always predicated with comments stating that the artist was overweight, had lost their looks, or was a junkie? But before we dig into all that, why don't you come and join us? BureauofLostCulture.com, thanks to all those who've signed up and written into us with ideas for future programs, and those who've helped support our wild endeavours. We really appreciate it. Now, onwards. This episode is the first dedicated to the subject of women in the counterculture. We're going to discuss that and groupies, libido, the female eunuch, Sid Barrett, again, Pink Floyd, the UFO club, again, dungarees, and what it was like being a girl, being a woman during the swinging 60s. My guests are Jill Drower, returning to the Bureau for a second visit, once a member of the exploding galaxy avant-garde performance theatre troupe and author of the terrific book 99 Balls Pond Road about the galaxy and her experiences in the counterculture. A terrific read. Welcome, Jill. Back. Hello. Uh, and Jenny Spires, model, singer, underground scenester, beatnik and world traveller and much, much more than Sid Barrett's girlfriend as she's been referred to quite often of late. Let's welcome Jenny. Hi. You weren't from London, were you? But you kind of came here. No, I'm from Cambridge, and so I grew up with the Floyd, really. Mm. And they were very important in the under- on the underground scene at that time, 66, 67. There's a whole bunch of you came from Cambridge to London. That's what it sort of yeah, seems like. but I, my first boyfriend in Cambridge was Sid Barrett. And, of course, he was the lead guitarist and singer of the Floyd. So I had seen them and gone to see them all play and knew them all from 64, 65 when they were doing gigs. And I came to London separately from him because he, he, by this time he had another girlfriend and they were living in Earlham Street, which is quite near here. I came to Lucy Clayton. What's Lucy Clayton? It's a kind of finishing school where they teach you to walk, but it's a model agency. So I was working for them. Didn't you work for English Boy as well? I I switched to English Boy, yeah, because I didn't agree with the prissiness of Lucy Clayton. I wanted to be... The word that we were using was unisex. So I didn't want to have a a girly persona. I'd be a groupie and hang around groups. I wanted to be my own individual single sex person. (laughs) And let's just uh, clear up this thing about being referred to as... Sid Barrett's girlfriend. Yeah. Sid yeah. Barrett, obviously an extraordinarily fascinating well, character. Years, I didn't have to be labelled like that. It was just when people started writing books. And then I really didn't come back into it until he died. And then 
lots of people were wanted to write, but I had letters from him, and um, I had actually been there when they'd <clears throat> done the beginning of their music thing, and I'd worked with Peter and got them to record for his film. And so there so was Peter Whitehead, this is Peter Whitehead, yeah. yeah. So you were involved with the making of Let's All Make Love in London. I I suggested he use the soundtrack of Floyd because he was talking about up and coming bands. Peter used to make um, videos for Top of the Pops. You know, he filmed the Stones. He made Charlie's My Darling, and he used to he filmed the animals. And he he started this. He, they call him the grandfather of pop video. When I first met him, he said he'd been making a film, and showed me the rushes for it, and said, "I just have no idea to what to do for the soundtrack." So I suggested using the up-and-coming band, which was the Floyd at the time. Your friend. And he hired sound techniques, which is what he used for his pop videos. And we went, we all went in there. The band weren't known. They hadn't made any records at all. And Sound Techniques is a studio? Sound Techniques was a, a quite a well-used studio. And Joe Boyd, he used to work there quite a lot. And he was very much in on the management team of Pink Floyd at the time before they signed with EMI. So you introduced Peter to them. They... Sid was at the art school in Cambridge, then he came mm. to Camberwell. He met Peter on an art course with Anthony Stern. Peter was at Cambridge, he was a physicist, basically. He'd done a course in painting and he had an exhibition in a pub. And then Anthony said that he and Sid would like to follow him into having an exhibition and that's how Peter met Sid initially and of course they um, got on really well. Peter was very much into classical music but the house he was living in was the parents of the girlfriend of Rick Wright who was the pianist of Floyd and they used to rehearse there sometimes and the noise used to drive Peter mad. I just thought it was awful. <laughs> But then, because uh, they were in full-blown um, experimental mode, then with you. Well, they they weren't actually. They were a cover band more at that oh, time. Yeah. They were getting into this kind of um, free improvisation thing. It was very much in the beginning of that. But he had uh, Peter and Sid at that time. That would be sixty-four, sixty-five. It would be maybe early sixty-six. They were discussing classical music and Sid's music of free interpretation interpretation and Peter said that he was really strikingly good so the seed was sown with him and I just came along and said you know Sid is in is in London now and isn't it and um, he said oh god yeah I'm going to use him for my and it worked very well world. together didn't it, it the did, music and it the worked film. well and he used um Interstellar Overdrive which was sort of well known in UFO where we were hanging out well let's hear about that at yeah. UFO which has come up many times in this programme I mean um, obviously I know it by repute just around the corner up on Tottenham Cut Road in the Blarney Club right and uh, it's sort of taken on this kind of mythic status hasn't it the UFO yeah. Club but you guys actually were there and I remember Jules uh, talking about that later. yes well I remember dancing to Interstellar Overdrive <laughs> at UFO and you could you know most actually to start with most of the people were sitting on the floor mm. uh, in those first two do you remember that when, how early I were you at UFO I think there was UFO? a crossover in London because London was mods and of course this underground thing was like totally new and I remember Jeff Dexter saying to 
to me that he was a DJ at Tiles, you know, which was a very kind of clubby thing and dancey. And, um, and he heard about this underground club starting and so he came down to see what it was. Mm. And people just didn't know what to think because they'd been used to dancing to really good soul music and dancing all night and uh, partying and clubbing. And here you had these guys doing this kind of free improvisation of what? <laughs> well, I think what's interesting is a lot of people at the club were under under um, 20 and the young people were slightly different from the sort of um, countercultural bigwigs. And the, the younger people used to run across the floor when there weren't many people at UFO and sort of fall in a heap and do really experimental dancing. And I think there was a little generation gap there in UFO. Before UFO started, there was the Floyd did some clubs at the London Free School for Hoppy, who started UFO with Joe Boyd. And then they did the launch of IT, the underground newspaper. International Times, which Miles would tell you about. Um, and they had a huge gig at the Roundhouse before anything. It, it was a railway yard at the time. They had leaves blowing across the cobbles <laughs> at the beginning. It was deadly. If you were into health and safety, you wouldn't have, no, it would have been closed down immediately. It was so dangerous as a building. But there were two stuff. bands, Soft Machine and uh, Pink Floyd. And of course, that was this kind of main underground sound uh, and following that gig Hoppy and Joe Boy decided to start a club and that's how you first started just like a few days later. And for you guys that was one of the kind of things which you rotated around I mean it was a small scene wasn't it in, in, in everybody scene, knew each other yeah. right that's, that was part of it the sound. It was all to do with the music. Music. But there were times during the club when it was silent and people could actually talk so it sort of produced this energy about talking about how we're going to change the world and and well, so the forth. The initial idea that? of the clubs was to, to make it as a happening mm. so that people could spontaneously do something or they could bring their artwork or they could um, cook unusual food or like we had, we had the dancers coming in. There were the exploding <laughs> galaxy with a sort of uh, anti-establishment hippie yes. ballet, and there were go-go, go-go girls. Do you remember well, that? In the Hoppy clubs, doing there that? would be girls dancing, and they were really girly dancing. And we just thought that that wasn't going to be the way we were going to be dancing anymore. So it was good the exploding galaxy happened. So you started was... to go down the route of dancing how? Well, we we evolved our own way of dancing. I'd call it bacchanalian individuality or something like that. We, we <laughs> could do anything. Thankfully, there isn't room in here for you to give us a demonstration. <laughs> it was free improvisation. Great. It, it was just you hear okay. the music and yeah. you would dance to it. Right. Anyhow, that was happening to right. you. Yeah. And Good. before yeah. that, it was sort of men and women dancing together and it was sort of jerky, not like Brazilian <laughs> dancing the samba. This was all a little bit rigid. And then suddenly everything was possible and you could dance any way you liked. So that was part of the whole I philosophy. I at ballet school in Cambridge and we used to have these, every year we'd have these competitions where we were given the stage uh, as a uh, solo and we were told, listen to this piece of music and then dance. So... I was already, I already knew all about free inflation. You were right in the middle of it, okay, it's all happening around you. I mean, I imagine it very exciting times and stuff. Now, what we're going to talk about here, though, in many ways, the counterculture was extremely progressive. 
right? It was overturning a lot of those 1950s ways of living and mm. working. And of course, it was the foundation for many things. Uh, you know, the ecology movement, proto-gay movement, lots of political changes, social changes. And yet, in some ways, when it came to relations between the sexes, it was quite traditional, wasn't well, it? Well, this is so, there was coupledom and we were kind of brought up to think that we'd be gay, engaged and then we'd get married and have children. But we, in the counterculture, weren't doing that. I mean, it was pretty big step forward to be living with your boyfriend or even to have a boyfriend when I was at school. <laughs> and uh, we were given a choice for choosing a boyfriend that we wanted to have and whether we wanted to sleep with him and live with him or not, or just be with him. And the main emphasis was on friendship. But that did change in the music industry, which became very male-dominated. Jill, you, you sent me these rules of sexual engagement. You were not allowed to fall in love. I'm hung up on him means I'm, I'm falling in love with him. And hang-ups are problems, aren't they? If you've got a hang-up, it's a problem. So, and the, pro the actual problem was everyone wanted commitment but you weren't allowed to say, say it in so. the counterculture. And if you're a man, that was especially you weren't allowed to say it. So you'd have these people, who, like, for example, if you saw your boyfriend going out with someone else, you weren't allowed to mind. Did you ever have that? I found this much more in America. Yes. Where people were living communally and they were... Um, exchanging partners all the time. Well, that was that was one of your rules. You were saying here that you know if you if your partner fancied another person or had sex with another person, you say, even if you're in the same building or the room, you were not allowed to mind. No, no you had to absolutely. be cool enough, and that happened a lot to, to accept the fact that. But Peter told me, uh, or in Europe, they had been doing this for years. This is particularly English. He was telling me, <laughs> and I thought. Well, in a way... Fidelity was seen as uncool, that's what you were yeah, saying. Yeah, it it's it? not groovy. You could be loyal and um, faithful to someone if you wanted to be, either a male or a female, but you had to just allow that person to sleep or be with who they wanted to be with that particular you, day. Mean, it's quite interesting because um, it's like they hadn't moved on. They moved on in everything from, you know, as I say, civil rights, Vietnam War, and then there's this little blind spot, <laughs> a colour blindness, if you like, or a, a thing you just, you've got blinkers on and you don't see past. And it was so convenient. I can imagine that that was a combination of, well, just deep-rooted stuff, you know, I mean, shaking free of like long, long-term conditioning, which is quite difficult mm. to do. But also, as you say, quite convenient for the guys well, to... Well, initially it did work both ways. Right. I mean, it just became politicised mm. along with Vietnam. And well, that. suddenly women were free to sleep with who they wanted. They could go and live yeah. with someone. It was one in a hundred, I think, and around that time actually cohabited um, with their partner. So it... And don't forget, these times, if you weren't married, you, you or if you fell pregnant and you weren't married, you wouldn't be able to keep the child. Jill also, you said... Unwanted pregnancies and unmarried mothers, yeah. there were three options. Number one, handing over the baby for adoption or forced adoption, the abortion, and keeping the baby and bringing it up alone. I mean, that's a bit grand. It depended on your age, really. Yes. And, um, you couldn't really get the pill, even if you were married, unless you had your husband's consent. So the pill was here, 
but you couldn't get it if you were married, and you couldn't get it if you were married without your husband's consent. You had to plan it out with your doctor that you were being married at a certain time and that you would like to start taking a pill. Right, so although the pill was there from 1961, it'd be the old Mother Hubbards who went to their doctor and said, I can't have another one, I've got seven already. Those were the people who got the film, the, the pill in the beginning. Married women. Yeah, and they were married, you know, they had to be married. So, you know, the idea that men had was, ah, oh, you know, they're on the pill, they can have an abortion. But actually, to have an abortion, a safe abortion in 1967, these things take a while to trickle through. And uh, I don't remember many people being on the pill in the early 60s. It you wasn't see that easy to get. Women found out information from each other. Men tended to talk about rifts in the corner and machinery. Uh, this is very unfair, but... <laughs> <laughs> I have memories of this. But the women were talking about, you know, is he good in bed, for example? Ha you know, what's happening with, you know, somebody's got pregnant. So we were really had our fingers on the pulse. We knew what was happening on the scene and the men were bumbling along. It was quite fun. Sort of kind of quite yeah. Sort yeah. deliberately oblivious. <laughs> a little bit, but it's uh, all right. Another one of your rules of sexual engagement was that um, all people were expected to have a strong sex drive. If you had a low libido, there was mm. something wrong with you. Yeah. Right. Yes. Okay. So you've got this kind of combination of you're supposed to have a you're supposed to yeah. have a strong sex drive. It's not cool to be to stick with one person. Contraception is difficult to find, and then if you do get pregnant, your your, your options are pretty grim. You know, unless you happen to be one of, with a tr more traditional guy who's actually going to you know inverted commas do the right thing. There's an additional thing mm. is if if you slept with people, if you slept with a lot of people, you were a groupie. So you've got a double standard working there. Okay, so this is a traditional thing again, that a guy who sleeps with lots of women is part of his persona sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas if for a girl, even in the 60s, in the 70s, for a girl or a woman, double no. standards, even during the counterculture. Yeah. You hadn't left that stuff at the door of the 50s. Okay, And no, um, no. this thing, idea of a continuum is very... Is mod that didn't exist then. You were either horny or you weren't, you had low sex drive, no one's interested in you. Two words that I would remember very clearly, one is uh, to do with commitment, the C word, and the other is the F word, which is frigidity. Uh, the number of people who've said they've been accused of being frigid because they this horrible, spotty, ghastly intellectual <laughs> who was boring the pants off them. You didn't want to sleep with him. <laughs> and so frigid. you're frigid. <laughs> but I mean, a, I, there's a film about that, which is... Uh, Repulsion by Polanski. Mm. It's a mm. brilliant document about mm. men's attitude in the 60s, because it was made then, uh, towards women who wouldn't wouldn't go with you. So this woman, mm. she comes over from Paris and she's a beautician and she she's not got a strong sex drive, but in, the, in Polanski's eyes, she's got a mental illness that makes her so dangerous that she kills people and rats them up in carpet. Isn't that what women do? <laughs> But, I mean, that summed up the men's attitude. But there was also this thing that if you didn't sleep mm. with your boyfriend or, or someone who you didn't really want to sleep with, you, you weren't going to develop at all. You, you ah, weren't going to okay. develop as a woman. You were going to get some kind of hang-up. So part of the sexual you revolution was that it was allied to some consciousness expansion so yeah. that part of actually, say sleeping with lots of people or being open to sleeping with anybody was part and parcel of this kind of 
flowering of the counterculture, in a sense, the mind, the consciousness expansion. Right, and if you didn't want to do that, that was somehow a sign of your own kind of limit. Uncool. Uncool. (laughs) And lacking in political consciousness. Right. One of the ways they got you to sleep with them was to tell you that you were politically, you know, had a blind spot. Another was you were very neurotic. And another way, real tricky way to get a girl to go to bed with you is to say to them, um, you know, a lot of men are not very good in bed, but I really know how to give a woman pleasure. So they're kicking the other. It's a bit like Attenborough, where one male is competing with... <laughs> like a couple of apes. And because they knew how bad most men were in bed, it was, you know, might work or it might not. Right, interesting. I think being sort of brought up with the idea that we should save that special part of ourselves mm. for someone that we were going to live with the rest of our lives. But most girls they just wanted to get rid of it you know get it out of the way so that they could start to live their mind consciousness and there's a hundred thousand different types of people aren't they want different types of things but i mean i think what you're saying there is is that whereas women might wanted to have shaken themselves free of those kind of expectations they didn't necessarily that they want to go from that immediately into a kind of orgiastic no. free-for-all and yet there was pressure to do that. There yeah. was the pressure. The thing is, you had this new wonderful freedom that you could go out and live with someone, go and have sex with someone. But there wasn't the freedom not to. The whole of the cult- counterculture called it liberation. What we would look at back at now, people's behaviour in the past, say it's exploitation. Wait a minute, what do you mean by that? Sexually anything went. And if you could get away with it, I mean, you know... I don't know if you want to talk. We don't need to name any names, but we should definitely talk about that if that was what was part of it. I mean, you talk about it in the book anyway, don't you? You make various references. Things going on that without any doubt now would be completely beyond the pale. Totally. They may have been illegal then, but certainly in the world that you guys are moving in, hey, it was permissive. Yes, and I think it spread out from rock bands and DJs out into the wider population. Jenny's nodding there. Do you agree? Uh, Definitely through the music thing, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, a big band, end of the gig, van, the van, and then the justification, I think, was I never saw their passport. I didn't know how old they were, but, you know, I've been to some fairly big gigs in my time and going around the stage door with these keen young girls, very, very vulnerable, but no one saw them as vulnerable. Um, you know, it was an opportunity. And that's so they... what you saw too, Jenny? Well, I was trying to think that when I was at school what people were like. If I'd been 14 or 15 and someone had been attracted to me, well, I probably didn't notice. But it wasn't because I wasn't 16 or I don't know. I do agree that later that's what happened. There were a lot of younger... I mean, I mean the groupie thing ruined our names, really, didn't it? Well, everyone thought of a hippie and they'd think, oh, sexually available. Groupie, that's yeah. made us all very very vulnerable, especially with a lot of mods around. I mean, the mods were pretty up for yeah. a rock and pretty aggressive. If I can give an example, um, this is from my book. Someone I interviewed who, at 13, experienced her first sex and... Uh, The day after, uh, the rapist gave her a lecture on not getting hung up on him. (laughs) So that's one. And another one is a 14-year-old girl goes to the speakeasy, which was nicknamed the speak. Some bigwig from the countercultures gave her an acid trip and took her home. Well, 
she was raped there and she thought she'd gone to hell and back. She was on an LSD trip. Um, I mean, I have countless stories. They all closed ranks, you see. You wouldn't be able to get people to answer questions on that. So It did all change quite badly. I mean, after it became Middle-earth and we could say from about February... I mean, it was uh, UFO was only wholesome, if you like, for about three or four months. Then it and became, that's a very good word, actually. <laughs> it became disoriented because people moved in who hadn't tripped. They didn't know about mind consciousness. So they might come in in a predatory way. But I think what you're saying there, actually, Jill, is that quite starstruck young people, young vulnerable women, people, vulnerable, quite vulnerable, who would you know, attracted by the kind of whole image of glamour thing, end up getting exploited, basically. An old, old story, isn't it? So it's going on in the counterculture, as it always has, in different ways, and perhaps more so, right? Because there was this era of permissiveness and its liberation, right? Yeah. One of the culprits, I think, in it getting worse was the newspaper. Oz magazine, in particular, Media. was poisonous towards women. This is a sidebar. In the 1960s, the Australian government repressed countercultural writing through police raids, government surveillance and criminal charges, including obscenity. As a result, Richard Neville, Martin Sharp and Jim Anderson fled the country and came to the UK, where they founded the British version of their Oz magazine. Contributors included many famous countercultural writers, including their compatriot, Jermaine Greer. By 1971, Oz was at the forefront of the underground movement. During its run of 48 issues up until 1973, it tackled all sorts of subjects ranging from gay rights to racism, environment, sex, acid, rock music and the Vietnam War. It was renowned for its psychedelic covers by Martin Sharp and cartoons by Robert Crumb. In the early 70s, it became the subject of the longest obscenity trial in British history, after it was raided by the Obscene Publication Division of the Metropolitan Police. Neville, Anderson and Felix Dennis, a Brit who worked with them, were charged with conspiring to corrupt the morals of the young. For Oz, issue number 28, created entirely by schoolchildren, which included a sexually explicit parody of the Rupert Bear cartoon strip. In response, the Friends of Oz campaign was formed and a publicity campaign launched in support of the editors. Posters, flyers and stickers were produced. The Elastic Oz Band was formed and released God Save Us featuring John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Celebrities agreed to give evidence at trial and a carnival was staged to support the defendants and protest against censorship laws and the growing climate of government repression. The editors were eventually acquitted of the conspiracy charge, but jailed for two other minor offences. But all three eventually won their appeals and were released. They were Australian and they came to London. One of Germain's kind of group, really. And they lived at the Pheasantry, didn't they? The Pheasantry is on King's Road and there were several people living there. Eric Clapton was there. and They had offices in the back of that house. And they were kind of in contrast to IT, the International Times. That they were saying all these really hostile things about women and to women in their yeah. magazines um, meant that it encouraged other people to have this attitude. So that would make sense if it was getting worse as the went, years went by. Then it was because these, I think they had a lot to answer for. International Times, women were invisible, completely invisible, unless they had taken their clothes off. 
So I analysed one year of issues and there were 118 captions and of those five were captions about women, five in 118. And all the emphasis and all the images were of women taking their clothes off. There was not, nothing about women who had something to save themselves. So in that sense, I think um, IT was not too good. Because you talk about that as the invisibility of women. They sort of got airbrushed out of the yeah, picture. They were. Right. Unless they um, kind of put themselves forward and had their body painted mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and had an, a nice photograph taken of them. But Oz, you seem to be implying there was a lot more aggressive. This probably isn't the right word, but they were very uncouth. And okay. we were young English yes. people. Mm. Okay. I'd never seen anything like that. It was misogynist before we. Uh, started this kind of movement or thought this is the movement that we wanted to be in. And so it was a shock to see that there was this underlying misogyny becoming a part of our mm. consciousness. Um, I've been more lenient on, on IT because I, I think it was more yeah. in-depth. But I have to say that there was a little bit of women hatred in it. And I've got one article. This is about a Dutch Provo, a member of the White Bicycles. This woman from the Provos suggests f the surgical removal of the hymen in cases of fear of penetration to ease the sexual dilemma. That was in IT. There was an underlying feel of aggression I might be wrong, but that was what I took from the Oz magazine. The onus was put on women, and if they weren't going to play ball, then we were going to be malicious about that. It did happen a lot with the Oz guys when they came. I want to, you mentioned Jermaine Greer, who's an Oz guy, yeah. as it were, and then, of course, she writes the book. Here's another sidebar. Maybe I couldn't make it. Maybe I don't have a pretty smile, good teeth, nice tits, long legs, cheeky ass, a sexy voice. Maybe I don't know how to handle men and increase my market value so that the rewards due to the feminine will accrue to me. Then again, maybe I'm sick of the masquerade. I'm sick of pretending eternal youth. I'm sick of belying my own intelligence, my own will, my own sex. I'm sick of peering at the world through false eyelashes. So everything I see is mixed with a shadow of bought hairs. I'm sick of weighing my head with a dead mane, unable to move my neck freely, terrified of rain, of wind, of dancing too vigorously in case I sweat into my lacquered curls. I'm sick of the powder room. I'm sick of pretending that some fatuous male's self-important pronouncements are the objects of my undivided attention. I'm sick of going to films and plays when someone else wants to. I'm sick of having no opinions of my own about either. I'm sick of being a transvestite. I refuse to be a female impersonator. I'm a woman, not a castrate. So said Jermaine Greer in The Female Eunuch, her 1970 book, which became an international bestseller, and it's probably the most famous, most widely read book on feminism ever. Jermaine Greer's claim is that the traditional suburban consumerist nuclear family represses women sexually, and that this devitalizes them, rendering them eunuchs. Drawing from history, literature, and popular culture, the book's examination of women's oppression was at once an important social commentary and a passionately argued masterpiece of polemic. It received a mixed reception though. But by March 1971, 
It had nearly sold out its second printing and been translated into 11 languages. In 1970, women couldn't get a mortgage or even buy a car unless their husbands or father countersigned the documents. Rosie Boycott worked for a year or so with Friends, a radical magazine, and co-founded the feminist magazine Spare Rib. She said of Jermaine Greer, Jermaine burst into this stifling, limiting life like a whirlwind. Get a life, she said. Think beyond your social conditioning. She challenged the accepted concepts of marriage, the nuclear family, and the obligation to breed, exhorting us instead to be doctors, lawyers, businesswomen. I was 19 when the book came out, and it bowled me over. I was stunned by Jermaine's extraordinary beauty and her daring, her openness about sex, her obvious pleasure in taking on men, her extreme cleverness, which combined with her wicked sense of humour. I think we were waiting for something. Does this strike yeah. a chord with you? I think it's waiting. ironic that we had all these malicious, malignant guys coming from us, but she came and she was the germ that produced this book, which explained very clearly to us what was going down. But she was colluding before. She appeared from what I saw of what she'd written. She didn't believe in coupledom and... I mean, I don't want to speak on her behalf, no. but I think that she went along with the old style. Um, but if I can just give you um, an example of how she completely changed in the kind of things she was doing. In um, 1967, she made a film with Robert Whittaker, who's the Beatles photographer. The film is called Darling, Do You Love Me? And it's filmed in... Brompton Cemetery? That's the one. And so they filmed what she's walking down with her boyfriend and she says, darling, do you love me? And that's the only thing she says. She's dancing. <laughs> and all the time she's around him saying, do you love me, darling? I look beautiful. <laughs> and it ends with her strangling him. Now, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. Love it. Yeah, so... Um, I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> so this, this was her view. This was what she was going along with in 67. Now, in 70, it all changed. When her book came out, everything changed. And it was absolutely spectacular. The The sales were phenomenal. It was changed, almost immediately translated into 11 languages. But my feeling is that people were, women were waiting for someone to say, this is ludicrous. Well, we were hanging out with a lot of older guys as well who had been to university, who had read about Freud and all these things. And there was a lot of talking about penis envy and things like that. I was mystified by it all. But then uh, Germaine came along, up yours, mate. Right, so she articulated the unspoken thoughts, maybe the unspoken feelings, which were rather inarticulate of many women at the time I think so, about yeah. what was going on she publishes this book well Freud was just in himself what we knew of him he was a very dangerous mm. man for women really when it came out did you read it straight away and was it something that you suddenly started to talk about what no, I didn't read it straight no, away. It was something that it. we were kind of like sponges, weren't we? We mm. were picking up everything. 
that was going on. And that... When I eventually read it, I I think there were two things I want, I wasn't so keen on. One is the thing I didn't agree with what she seemed to be saying about commitment to men and relationships. That was one thing. Being on your own is better than being with a man. Kind of Virginia Woolf thing, you need a room of your own. Do what you'd already been doing and stand on your own two feet. So it kind of empowered women, right? It empowered us because it took us back to the initial thing, like when we were 11 or 12 and we were thinking, hang on, why are they saying... I could be a teacher, a nurse, or I want to be an anthropologist, you know. <laughs> we were brought up to think that we would be wise. So it empowers, or re-empowers, you could say, in that sense, um, who you could be, and that you didn't have to play the rules that the men had written. In this whole thing, this countercultural thing, yeah. and the sexual revolution, you could uh, take control yourselves. And, of course, it... Then it also starts to snowball a bit, doesn't it, because there's spare rib. And women's movement then starts to actually become a thing in itself, right? Yes. And then we stopped uh, wearing, um, you know, Guinevere costumes <laughs> and, start, and started wearing dungarees. Did you wear dungarees <laughs> at 1970? It's absolutely we, overnight. At one point in London, every, the men and the girls were dressed the same. They right. were wearing sailor trousers and granddad T-shirts. Remember. Mm, yeah. I think we all went through this sudden penny drop moment. I mean, if I can take Yoko Ono, for example, at the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, this was a, a Yoko Ono happening. It was an absolutely stunning woman sitting on a ladder, having clothes cut off her. At the title of the work, a beautiful woman is like a manifesto. Now, tell me why. Why are you saying this thing? There were lots of mods causing trouble at the 14-hour Technicolor Dream, drugged up with pet pills, and they were round this woman on a ladder, and I thought, blimey, she's not safe. And then there were all the hippie men going like this, you know. This is such a sexist, appalling piece of... But we were all colluding with the men. By going along with pretending it was cool? Yeah, it was all breaking yeah. all the rules. We were being free and, you know, like the Garden of Eden. Let me drop another one on, because, of course, um, the sort of bête noir, the book which stands in opposition to the female unit, was Jenny Fabian's groupie, right? I was just going to Telling me, groupie, what do you think? I was appalled. Well, I kind of think that it's good in that she managed to really create a clear picture of the exploitation. She also gave an impression of how free women were in a way not to be, you know, ruled by their bi biology. This protagonist of hers, her big ambition in life seemed to be um, to be the top groupie and to sleep with the best rock front man of them all. She didn't want to be in a band. She didn't want to play music or learn the drums or uh, take photographs. All she wanted to do is be the top groupie. It's like a mistress from the 19th century. Uh, her man is only going to have her for a bit. It just seems so old-fashioned. Well, and also the man in this case is a sort of thinly disguised version of Sid Barrett. Yeah. Funny, when I met Jenny, I hadn't read the book. Jenny was my one of my first interviewees 
on this program. I interviewed I her like about her. groupie. I think yeah. she's great. It's just that bo- book didn't help any of us really. Again, it was a kind of media thing. That- For anyone who doesn't know, it's a it's a cult novel published in 1969 by Jenny Fabian, a sort of thinly disguised version of her own adventures on the underground scene of the 60s. Uh, the protagonist Katie introduces the reader to a variety of characters some of them quite recognisable and from clubs and galleries and drugs and uninhibited sex. Co-written, co-written by a guy, Johnny Byrne. I mean, I can see how on one hand it actually kind of would feed into the guy's impression of what a cool chick would be like. At the same time, she is kind of her own girl in, yeah. and she's not really bothered what the men think in a way. I- Pretty sure, but I haven't, didn't read it thoroughly again. Um, that um, there's no birth control seems to be a theme in the book. What's in the book is going to the clap clinic. It's actually a transmitted disease clinic. Now that makes me think the book is written entirely for men. I mean that because it's a hazard of having sex is you go to the clap clinic. Pregnancy doesn't seem to exist. You said uh, previously, of course, didn't you, that there was no obligation for the man to think about birth control. Mm. It was the girl's job, right? The other thing which did happen, which you sent me, Jill, which is quite interesting, is this advertisement, which shows this guy who looks like a kind of middle manager. Yes, exactly. But he's pregnant. He's got this big bump under his Marks and Spencers jumper, and it's kind of along the lines of, like, imagine if it was you. The date of that would be very relevant, because at that point... It was entering the consciousness. But before that, the women had to take responsibility for not getting pregnant. And that ad did have quite a strong effect. At least it would have woken people up because there is that thing quite often that it was just obliviousness in a way, wasn't it? Not necessarily malintent, just kind of it's convenient to not think about it. So well, it- just to move away from this kind of sexual stuff for a moment, kind of hinted at it already in terms of women getting airbrushed out of the story. Jenny, you had this observation, didn't you, maybe when you were actually involved with some of the boutiques and the designers. Women were quite often designing things and making stuff, but yeah. not getting any credit. Now, no. uh, one of my interviewees was Diana Crawshaw. Diana worked for Mr. Freedom and Paradise Garage, and mm. she was a maker and a designer. She was very much part of the look of the clothes that that place made, which were worn by some very famous people. And she was never credited and still well, hasn't been credited. Ozzie Clark shop, Quorum. It was Ozzie and Alice Pollock. And all the beautiful, the clothes really, were Alice's designs. But nobody ever talks about Alice. It's always Aussie, Aussie. As I switched from Lucy Clayton to English Boy, and there were a lot of us girls who were working with Aussie and Alice, um, and a lot of guys from the scene. But I had been doing some stuff for Sheila Cohen, who was the other partner of Granny Takes Trip. And whoever mentions Sheila Cohen and all her design, she was the main designer. It was all of Sheila's clothes that I was modelling or wearing. Well, she's never mentioned. Not credited, right? I'm always bringing her up. So it looks like I've got a bid in for uh, Richard Neville. Um, but there is a, a, a comparison here. Um, he wrote a book in the 1990s and he was talking about his girlfriend of the time in London, Louise Ferrier. It was said that she was Oz magazine. She did all the secretarial work, 
a lot of the communication. She did so much for that magazine. And Marsha Rowe, who wrote about her experiences with Oz, she said they could not possibly in a million years have run that place without uh, Louise Ferrier. Here's how he describes Louise Ferrier. The bare-thighed Louise served the tea in a silver Lurex Micro Mini. Her white jeans and sloppy joe set off her suntan. Louise sat poised and at ease in a red-striped mini dress. Louise looked like looked shy and demure in lolly in a lolly pink shift. You mentioned also Carol Grimes. Carol, oh, yes. She lived with Larry Smart, who was the go-to um, artist of the time. He lived in Notting Hill Gate. His home was, you know, everyone come over and my Hostiles. girlfriend will cook you brown rice. Mm. And and she really was a little skivvy for him. I mean, she, she, she was actually a singer. And you can hear her now and go and see her concerts now. But... We never knew her as uh, Carol Grimes, the singer. You mentioned Jermaine Greer and Caroline Kuhn was an example of somebody who's getting it on completely independently, right? Mm. Set up release. This is a woman really established as an artist, but then she set up release and release is still going. Well done, you. And there was a guy called Mick Farron in the counterculture mm. and he didn't like her, I think possibly because of her posh voice or whatever. Um, but he said, what, a woman running release? This is no good. We're going to have to sort this out. So he invades release, which is this helpline for people who have been arrested for drugs, and he takes it over. But, of course, he's got no staying power. Within five minutes, he can't be bothered or whatever it is. And then she and Rufus Harris, who was the other person who worked there, they went back and carried on and they're still going strong. But that was a fairly typical reaction that women were somehow, you know, not grown up. They might start something off, but then you need the guys to come in and sort oh, yeah. of this, run it for them. Well, this is what happened to well, UFO. It got mm. taken over by a group of guys. Well, we got, and we got Rosie Boycott as well. Oh, yeah. oh, we got exceptional women, yeah. definitely. Exceptional women coming through. And, of course, it did start to change, didn't it, in the 70s? And I'm not, I'm not for one moment mm. saying that I've fixed it or that even it's fixed these, to these, this day. But, you know, Jenny, you know, you went on, did some extraordinary things. You were in America, right, travelling with Peter Coyote and the Merry Pranksters and doing all sorts of other things. You've lived well, a whole countercultural life. I was a very much a, a beat. I wasn't really a hippie ever. Mm. I mean, I may have worn the clothes and hung out with the people. But in my heart, I really wanted to be on the run. And tra I wanted to travel. So I had met these Americans of the Grateful Dead when they came over to the Beatles Christmas party, was it? They went to. And um, this uh, Ken Kesey as well. And they invited me to go back, so I took them up on it, and I went to California, and I stayed around those people, the Grateful Dead, and actually travelled to Woodstock. I didn't know it was going to be a great big festival, and so I just said, yeah, I'll go. But they were travelling around on the buses. I wanted to see them. What was that like? I had a, an exploding galaxy of a time. <laughs> <laughs> were you taking lots of acid? At that time, No. Funnily enough, and I didn't like grass. I wasn't smoking. I was quite straight. I had done my little bit of acid taking and smoking in London. And I stopped probably in 67 when things started to go on a downward turn. I didn't want to be a model and I didn't want to be in a film or anything like that because it just 
it's just so much silly hanging around and having to dress up all the time. I wasn't interested. So that's when I thought, well, I should do what I want to do in travel. But of course, it did lead to this sort of pop scene as well, the Grateful Dead, and the way that they all lived with their old ladies and their in their way of counterculture. And like we were saying, Americans use the term "old my <laughs> old lady." I thought that was all. So right now, I was isn't just it, yeah. this um, little lad in the middle of it, you know, tomboy, really English girl. But um, it was an eye opener. It was an experience. So. When I actually finally came back, I decided that I needed to be educated. So I went off to do some A-levels, which is extraordinary. I would never have thought of that at 15 or 16. That was the very last thing I wanted to do. And then I did a degree. I could never have done it as a young girl, going straight through school and going to university. I had to do this extraordinary thing in the middle, so... I haven't really smoked any dope or anything since then. That's okay. <laughs> Can't tell you about it. But I have followed up on all the consciousness, mm. mind consciousness, mm. mind mm. expanding. There's many different ways to expand your consciousness. As yeah. Another. And Jill, I mean, you too. I mean, obviously you're in Exploding Galaxy and you're very young then as well. You were in a folk band, as you told us last time. Kept that under your hat a bit. but uh, And then, you know, you went off, you were involved with Tropicalia, which we hope we're going to do something about in the future. And then, you know, you travelled to Brazil, you've done all sorts of other stuff since. A couple of things I wanted to ask you guys because, sorry, not guys, girls. You know, we live in a time now, recently, particularly the last few years, you can call it cancel culture, you can, some people call it cancel culture, some people call it wokeism, political correctness, lots of stuff about identity politics and all sorts of things going on. There's the culture wars, let's call it that. Talking to Miles, talking about his time with Alan Ginsberg and, you know, those American beats and stuff. And I said to him, if they were around now, they'd all get cancelled, wouldn't they? And he said, they wouldn't get cancelled. A lot of them would get imprisoned. Right? Yeah. They did stuff, which now would be regarded as beyond the pale. They're doing stuff which was illegal then, which certainly be illegal now. The times have changed, haven't they? On one hand, there is this feeling that bad behaviour is bad behaviour. Exploiting vulnerable people, whether it's in the 19th century, or the 1960s or the 1990s or now, right, it's wrong. There was also a level of behaviour which was contextual, right, in the sense that people were doing stuff which now is unacceptable. But at the time, there was a whole culture of it going on. And my feeling, at least, is that we have to, in some ways, forgive and forget some of that stuff because... We can't judge the past with all the standards of the present. Some of them, yes, but not all of them. I mean, what, what do you think about that? I think as time goes by, people's mind gets opened, uh, re-educated. We were not re-educated. By re-educated, what do you mean? Well, understanding that this is abusive behaviour. There was a lot that was going oh, on that yeah. was abusive. In the counterculture, you'd have someone who is a Scientologist... And next to them would be um, a Maoist. And they would tolerate each other's expressions of different opinions. You might occasionally get someone standing up and walking over the, you know, out of the room or something like that. But there was somehow a tolerance that other people are going to think differently. A lot of the things you could say then you couldn't say now. But the, it's true that an awful lot of really bad criminal behaviour went on. And I agree with Miles completely. Jenny? I think it's very difficult to judge those times from today's perspective. But we were kind of educating ourselves about other people. I felt that I was educating myself when it comes to... But now we are 
in an age where everything we're doing is being logged. Uh, I mean, I also think that it's early days, isn't it, with a lot of this way of thinking. So there's there's a new exp- consciousness expansion thing going on. So new things about gender, which maybe are not natural to my generation. Yeah. For myself, I, I, I never minded if anyone wanted to be gay or not or into having lots of sex or not having any sex. I mean, I don't, re- I don't really register with the forms of sexuality. I think it's just crazy. Sometimes it feels to me, for sure, that like there's people who are way too touchy. A lot of There's a lot of virtue signaling going on and it might take a bit of time for this, some very genuine stuff about difference and to actually become mature in a way, right? I mean, there were things that happened, the movements that you guys made from, say, women not being allowed to live with a partner of their choice outside Mm -hmm. marriage. Prior to your generation, and of course in many places in the world still, that would be seen as a sin, right? Okay. It's we don't think it's a sin, we think it's it's laudable and, you know, should be available to everybody. So something has radically changed there, hasn't it? And I think things are changing now in a way as well, and we just don't necessarily understand quite how and it's going to take a bit of time for it to get it right. But with regard to the standards of the past and you know, you and I have talked before, Jill, there's certain people that I've wanted to interview for this program and they have declined. And I think it may be just that they don't want to talk, but I think it also may be that they want to keep their head below the parapet mm-hmm. because maybe there are things that happened in those, those times mm-hmm. that they don't really want to go public kind of about. Like this is not to condone actions that hurt people or loiter people, but I can see that some stories are never going to get told because yeah. there's a fear of the current culture. There were lots of fantastic freedoms that we had Mm. in the 60s, but we haven't really shone a light on the not-so-good behaviour. But it doesn't diminish how extraordinary that time was. And maybe we were extreme because we were breaking a, a... you know, busting up a boundary. And maybe that's what's happening now. Some people feel it's exaggerated, but, you know, that it'll settle down into being something people can manage of all generations. Absolutely. But there's, listen, there's an awful lot more to say on, on all these subjects. But uh, for today, we've got to the end. Thanks very much, Jill, for coming and talking a little bit about your experiences at the Bureau of Lost Culture. You're welcome. Enjoyable. Thank you. Jenny, thank you so much for talking about some of your life and times. And uh, loath as I am to refer to uh, Sid Barrett again after where we started off that, I just wanted to ask you a final question because you were there at the beginning and his arc in the counterculture, of course, is a tragic one. And how was that for you? Because It's awful. We spent, uh, close friends spent years grieving. I think the worst thing was that we were we were told basically that it would be better if we didn't see him in between because it may remind him of things he didn't want to be reminded of. Whereas now we feel we damn well should have gone to see him, have a cup of tea, say how are you. I used to bump into him sometimes and he he'd always really light up, you know. But he didn't ever say come round, so I I didn't. Because I didn't want to tread on the toes of people who were looking after him. But now we've done a lot more research into what may well have happened to him. And in London, there was, uh, in 1967, July 27th, I think, he changed overnight. 
and at that time there was the drug convention at the Roundhouse. Quite a lot of academics on that psychology scene that came to London. And some of them had been staying in the house where he was. And I know historically in America they've been having terrible time uh, on the cl- in the clinics and in San Francisco and around the Haight-Ashbury with a drug called STP that people were advocating as something that was like LSD, you know. But So we think that he possibly took that. He was given that by someone to, because it happened over time. Quite a lot of his behaviours that I remember now, you could tell that he was kind of thrown back into something that wasn't very comfortable for him. With STP, it goes on for 24 hours can go on for 48 hours and you can have flashbacks for the rest of your life from it and I think that's what happened to him and he didn't uh, smother himself with lots of drugs as people like to believe you know think oh yeah he just took everything that came his way he didn't but now we, we do have this new research and I think that we will be putting it out there looking forward to that well thanks Jenny very much for coming with Jill to the View of Lost Culture. <laughs> oh, thank you. No, thank you. Well, there we have it. Just scratching the surface of a very big subject. I'm sure we'll be returning to discuss these themes again in the future. And do join us again in the future. Thanks very much for spending your time, countercultural or not, with us for this episode. You can come and join us, bureauoflostculture.com. We've got a newsletter which we send out, which gives advance warning of each episode and increasingly will contain more countercultural links and all sorts of goodies. Sign up for that. You can mail us, of course, and let us know what you'd like to hear about and if you like, support our wild endeavours. I'll put a link to Jill's book, 99 Balls Pond Road. It's a fantastic survey of a couple of two or three years in the 60s, her own experiences in this crazy avant-garde performance commune thing called the Exploding Galaxy, but also a picture of London at the time. This episode of The Bureau of Lost Culture was sponsored by the artist known as The Real Tuesday World, tuesdayworld.com. This is their song, Promises, Promises. From their album, Blood. See you next time.
quarter. 